welcome back to Stories from the Vortex, a Doctor Who audio adventures podcast. I'm Matthew Kressel, and I'm joined as always by the one and only, and often contrary, Mary Lang. <laughs> Hello. Now this episode, we're going to be looking at a story that should have been broadcast 51 years ago this month. Supposing this episode is in fact still coming out in January and not coming out in February or March. And that story is The Masters of Luxor, released as part of the Lost Stories range in August 2012. Now, it's interesting that this story came quite late in the day for the Lost Stories range because this is really the first proper Doctor Who Lost story. This was originally intended to be the second ever Doctor Who story following on the story that inevitably became an earthly child but originally started out uh, called The Giants and was eventually became Planet of the Giants in the show's second season, so a lot of things being moved around the schedule. Now, because the story that became an unearthly child was moved from its second slot to the first Doctor Who story ever, Anthony Coburn, who wrote that story, was commissioned to write a, the immediate sequel story, originally called The Robot. But because he was having to do rewrites on An Unearthly Child, he wasn't able to finish the story in time. So, inevitably, a story by a little-known comedy writer named Terry Nation was moved forward in the schedule. And, as they say, the rest was history, because that story was, of course, The Daleks. Now, The Master of the Luxor was completed as a script and was originally intended to be the show's fifth uh, ever story. But once again, Anthony Coburn found himself being replaced by Terry Nation, as the story that actually went out was The Keys of Marinus. And it wasn't actually until the late 1980s that anybody was kind of aware that the script actually survived when Titan Books was publishing a range of Doctor Who script books. And uh, Anthony Coburn's widow pointed out to the editors there, it's like, oh, I've got this, un, you know, this unproduced Doctor Who thing my husband wrote. And the Masters of Luxor script was originally released by Titan in 1992, which I actually have a copy of sitting here on my desk at the moment. Uh, but it would be almost another 20 years before Big Finish got around to producing their version of it, which is what we're going to talk about today. So, without further ado... The Masters of Luxor. Nothing. It can't be empty of life. A place as big as this, it can't be. They've certainly made enough noise to wake the dead. This is a kind of outpost for some civilization. Take them to the processing room. What do you want from us? Life. One of you must give me enduring life. He's gone mad. Come on, Doctor. We have to get out of here. Full power. Full power through Chesterton to me. No man of Luxor has ever resisted 50,000 Lomotrons, and yet these women creatures are not even marked. To make a mockery of a man. To create a creature with no feelings, with no emotion, with no soul. Come on! Your people created this device. You must know how to disarm it. This Derivatron does not understand. This Derivatron does not understand. Not understand. But you know what? After listening to this story, having heard that it was supposed to be uh, the second one in the production block uh, at the very beginning, I was, I won't say disappointed that they did the Daleks, because, of course, that became, you know, the iconic monster. But to hear hear you say that they had it lined up and ready for the second production block, 
um, but did the Keys of Marinus instead, it really saddens me because I think this would have been a much better story to do than the Keys of Marinus. Yeah, you know, I'm fond of the Keys of Marinus to a certain extent. It's one of my favorite Hartnell stories. Oh, not mine. Well, I think I, I particularly like it because I think it's Terry Nation going back to things like Around the World in 80 Days and that whole adventure serial formatting mm -hmm. that Doctor Who kind of drew from in its early years and was sort of paying tribute to a lot of that. But which is why I like that. Around the World in 80 Days was one of my favorite books when I was younger. So I like it for that reason, but I you know, I think Masters of Luxor is a far better story than that. Yeah, it is so much better written. And I kept wishing that, oh, I wish I could see this on screen. I wish they had made this uh, for the TV series. But then maybe I don't wish that. Because made back in 1963 or 4, whenever they would have made it, you know, it would not have had the great sets that I had going on in my head. Um, it would not have had the the wonderful music that is in this. And and I can only think that it would have been a lesser thing. But I don't know, because I, th I think it is so well written uh, and very well directed uh, by Lisa Bowerman. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed this one a lot. Um, and it's, uh, what, six episodes long? Yeah. Yeah, six episodes, three CDs, and it never lost my attention. Usually with these uh, William Hartnell stories, be it TV or um, on CD, I kind of have to give myself a break after every uh, episode uh, because I start to lose lose it. You know, it, it, I, I lose interest. But in this, I was so excited to move on to the next episode of the story that I almost listened to the whole thing in one go. Oh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, but they do reference at the beginning um, some of their other travels, um, which are some other lost stories that Big Finish did. Yeah, they reference um, Farewell, Farewell Great Macedon and uh, the, yellow, the Yellow Fragile Arc of Fragrance right. <laughs> from uh, the uh, first Doctor Lost Stories box set that was done before this. I think it was just a way of tying it all together because... I think part of what the Lost Stories have tried to do, as well as presenting these stories, is to also fit them into larger Doctor Who continuity. Mm -hmm. So as a result, you couldn't have it taking the place of the, of the Daleks within the actual story order, because of course the Daleks is a, is a, I hate to use the word canonical, but there, I don't think there's another way of putting it, Doctor Who story. So they moved it so it kind of follows along from the bo that previous box set. Mm -hmm. Now, do you think that that was written in especially for this? Because I doubt they would have referenced those had it been made into the TV series. Well, I've read the script book. I own the script book. Okay. So. I read the script book two years before the audio came out. Actually, it might have been closer to three years. Now, and this is the original script. This book. is the original script. I mean, um, John McElroy, who edited the script for Titan, uh, does note they did make a few minor sort of uh, changes to when they did it. A lot of it was just editing stuff, you know, because how early the script was written in the run, you know, um, Ian keeps calling the Doctor Doc for, for a while in the original version of the script. Susan is spelled a couple of different ways. I think actually they, she gets called Suze at one point. <laughs> um, so the, what they did when they actually edited the script for Titan was they sort of standardized it and they, they didn't change things. But they, like, as I said, you know, where things were clearly out of place. But for the sake of this recording, 
Um, do you think that they put in references to other adventures? Because if this had been the second story in the TV series, they would not have done anything yet besides uh, the unearthly child and, and the, the cavemen. Three episodes of intertribal politics and the quest for fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those references I don't think would have been in there. I, I'm trying to remember. It's been so long since I watched that first Dalek story. I mean, I think that somewhere in the first episode, they probably would have thrown in a reference to the fact that they had just come from the caveman time, if this had been done on TV. Uh -huh. But it's not something listening to this that really bugged me, you know, sort of listening to it, especially the first time I heard it in 2012. Well, it didn't bother me. I just kind of found it amusing that they were referencing stories that were never made um, and other adventures that they'd been on when, in fact, this was intended to be only their second trip with the doctor right and they just for big finish i think or really we should say nigel robinson who adapted it who also previously adapted um farewell great macedon the fragile yellow arc of eight fragrance chose to move it farther along i suspect as i said for the fact that they're trying to make the lost stories fit into the established doctor who canon okay well something else that i found interesting if one looks on the um, big finish site or maybe if you've got the cd it's probably on the cd that each one of these episodes has a, a title. Yes. Uh, very much like the TV series, every episode has a title. Right. Um, so I wonder if these are the original titles to yes. the original episodes. Yes, these are the original titles, or the they're the titles that are in the Titan script book at very at, at the very least. So um, that's the Cannibal Flower, the Mockery of a Man, A Light on the Dead Planet, Tabon of Luxor, An Infinity of Surprises. And the flower bloom to the various episode titles. Mm -hmm. Those are the, all the ones that are in the script book, and I think that John McElroy in his notes in the script book does mention that those were the original titles, um, because there's, you know for the first basically three years, going on four years of the show, every episode had an individual title, mm -hmm. which is kind of interesting because I think there's an episode, one of the episodes, I think it's a, of the Romans, is called Inferno, for example, uh, which of course later became the title of a, of a John Pertwee story. And, of course, it leads to all kinds of confusion about what Hartnell stories are actually called since they didn't have a single overarching title, technically. Well, you said that this was originally called The Robot? Yeah, it was called The Robots. Robots, was, okay. Yeah, plural, was okay. what the story was originally called. The interesting thing is that it wasn't until after it was postponed that it actually took on the title we know it by today. I rem I had to say, Caroline Ford, in, in sort of talking in the extras at the end of it, says that when she first got the script and saw the title, she thought it was going to be about Egypt. Yeah, which I have to admit, when I heard the title for the first time, was my thought as well. It's like, oh, I didn't know there was this first Doctor Egypt story that never got made. And of course, you start as, as it was for me reading the script. Right. It and sounds like it will be another historical. <laughs> start reading the script, and it's like, oh, this is this is something else entirely. Yeah, I mean, how exciting! Uh, early on, it was anticipated that they would do, you know, a, a, an outer space story before getting bogged down in all these historicals that they did. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is, is that while it's an alien planet, in the very early drafts of it, it was actually going to be, I think, 30th century Earth or something. Oh, really? It was actually going to be Earth-based, or it was going to be based mm -hmm. around Earth well mm -hmm. into the future. And I think that, you know, they made the decision, let's set it on an alien planet, which I think is actually understandable under the circumstances i guess if thinking about it maybe the luck you know the where they find themselves would have been maybe a moon base or something i don't know yeah but i think certainly putting it on an alien planet does allow it to kind of do the thing that 
I think as we've talked about before, that science fiction has always been good at doing, which is taking sort of concerns or ideas that are in the air at, in a, at a particular point, but you set it on an alien planet or take it way into the future, and you can actually look at those ideas in a different context. Star Trek, of course, is famous for doing it, Planet of the Apes as well, for that matter. And certainly, I think one of the things they talk about in the extras is that the themes of it, I mean, it's very much a product of the time in which it's created. You do have kind of all this thing about eugenics, for example, which was still in the air following on, you know, the Nazi atrocities of World War II. And eugenics was very big here in the United States before World War II during the early half of the 20th century, uh, which is all coming in here. There is sort of this sort of Frankensteinian notion about, you know, us going too far in terms of scientific development. It's sort of, I think, following in sort of one of the fears, I think Nigel Neal, writing the Quatermass serials, talked about that people had been, people were grateful for science but also fearful of it, if you think about to the Cold War and nuclear weapons. And sort of one of the fears that I think people like Robert Oppenheimer expressed, you know, that we would blow ourselves up because our knowledge had gone farther than our ability to actually deal with it. So I think it's, you know, so that's a lot to do with the story. But one of the things that was very interesting reading the script that's toned down quite a bit in this big finished version, though it's still present to a certain extent, is that in the original Anthony Coburn script, there's a very strong religious subtext running throughout the whole thing. Particularly the notion, and interestingly, we were talking before we started recording, you mentioned Star Trek The Motion Picture. Mm-hmm. And what I, the thing I, I initially thought of when I read the script book and I was thinking of when I l- listened to it this time is that it's at least superficially similar to the ending of that. You have this machine that's kind of searching for its creator because it wants to be something more and it feels like it needs its creator to be able to do that. So it's certainly an interesting story. And I, you know, it, it's, the, the overtones and stuff are a bit heavy, especially in the script. They're toned down quite a bit in the actual production here, which is one of my sort of minor beefs with it, is the fact that it's very significantly toned down, which I think kind of defeats the whole point of doing the lost stories to begin with, is that the whole thing is you're presenting stories that weren't made. And you can look at these stories in the case of something like, say, Mission to Magnus from one of the Six Doctor lost stories, and you can see exactly why it never got made. But you need to present it faithfully. And I think, I understand there's a need to adapt to a certain extent because you're presenting it in a much different format. This is basically an enhanced audiobook versus a full cast drama as it would be normally for Big Finish or even if it had been aired on TV in the 1960s. But when you start pulling out subtext and start toning things down because you think it won't be accessible to a modern audience, it's defeating the whole point of trying to do faithful reproductions of an era, if you know what I mean. I know what you mean, but then you're also defeating your own purpose of putting out stories that people want to listen to. Right. But um, I think, you know, it, it's the earliest of the missing lost stories, so I think there's already there was already a lot of interest in it anyways, uh, particularly because the script book was out of print for, well, it's still out of print, and at one point was going for very sizable chunks of money online. You couldn't get a hold of the thing. So it's one of the reasons it was exciting to know that there was going to be a version of it done. One thing that I wanted to comment on was uh, you, you being a little upset that the, uh, the original uh, religious overtones were taken out. This, this need for a, a, an object to search for its creator, the finding meaning and, and all that in the creator. 
I, I don't know that that's necessary now because I did not know that there were strong religious overtones to the original story. Um, I fully bought into the idea that um, just as parents will sacrifice everything for a child, um, which is here, um, but the child wants to be in the arms of its father. There's just that strong relational draw um, between parents and children. So uh, that's how I cast, and I, and I think that's maybe you know where the script took me. Um, so I did not feel like we needed to have you know a religious creator, but we had more of a father-child relationship going on. Yeah. I mean, it's still, to a certain extent, it's still here. You do hear the perfect one referring to Tavon as being, as being its god. And there's an exchange, I think, from late in the story that gets sort of cut out. Part of it's still in there. It's along the lines of, uh, Susan asked the question to Ian and Barbara, it's why, along the lines of, um, why are you Earth people afraid of the word God? And Ian replies back, because he is no longer scientific. And Barbara says, he waits for his god, he being the perfect one, and, mm -hmm. his god, and his god is only a man I can't bear to watch. And Ian turns back to Susan and says, does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. There's also the point, I think it's in episode five, when Barbara and Susan trying to uh, confuse, I think it's the one of the Derivatrons, um, are singing a hymn. And in the original script, it was Onward Christian Soldiers, and they changed it to something slightly less explicit. Oh, or something more patriotic sounding. Something more patriotic uh -huh. um, in this one. So it's... You know, it's the kind of the thing, you know, and it's going back to it. I'm not especially religious, as you and I have talked about privately. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, well, I think what bugs me about it isn't the fact that there were religious subtones in the script, which might be why they didn't make it to begin with, because it's, I think, particularly, you know, it's a more philosophical-based script. And you think about what Doctor Who was becoming because of that first Dalek story. It was becoming more of the action-adventure series. I mean, you think about, even in some of the historicals like Marco Polo, it was moving away from being, I guess, what we would call serious science fiction to a large extent, which this, I think, fits into. Well, I think this story, it struck me as action adventure. There's quite a bit of action in it, um, quite a bit of horrific action, too. But the theme of worshipping science, you know, doing things because science puts its stamp of approval or you pursue science instead of other way other rationale for doing what you do i think that is very much a current theme um, i think we have become so caught up in worshiping science um, that we are losing ourselves we're losing our souls even now so i took the theme to be pretty current hmm. I mean, I, I looked at it more, as I said, talking about earlier, in sort of the context, you know, you think about, you know, the atomic bomb and all of that, and sort of the nuclear fear that's kind of hanging over mm -hmm. the world at that point. And certainly, you know, if you look in, I have an interest, as we've talked about before, in Cold War history, and reading into what people like Robert Oppenheimer and stuff were saying, you know, the kind of the fear that we would blow ourselves up because our scientific knowledge had outstripped our ability to make, you know, decisions in a sort of a rational way. You know, the big fear about nuclear weapons being, you know, somebody's going to, there's going to be irrational decision making and we're all going to blow ourselves up. Well, see, so you put, you put it in a historical context and I put it in a, in a current context, which may be um, what, what makes this story very successful. Um, I see us in the process now 
um, with the you know robotic surgeries and um, the little robot that that vacuums our floors and and all that that we are on that path of building um, robotic servants yeah. to do things for us and you know and, and this is the theme in more things than just Doctor Who. Right. Uh, I think Battlestar Galactica was based on this. It's it's the we build um, human prototypes to do things for us and. You know, where is that going to end up? <laughs> yeah. Well, think about Cyberman, which we reviewed not that long ago, and sort of yeah. the androids in that, for example, going back to Blade Runner uh, exactly. as well. Yes, that too. Yeah. And and eventually, do they do they become independent thinkers? Do they have a conscience? Do they become sentient? And then do they start wanting, um, you know, independence and their own way of being? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> It's not a new idea by any means. I mean, Isaac, Isaac Asimov was exploring it in the robot stories of the of the, thir of the late 30s through the 1950s and onwards. I sing the body electric. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which I think actually is a, a Ray Bradbury story. Oh, is that Bradbury. Ray Bradbury? I think that's Ray Bradbury because it ended up being turned into an episode of Twilight Zone, if I remember right. Yes, it did. And welcome to, yeah, and welcome to the We're Talking About Everything But Doctor Who podcast. No, 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 no but it all fits in. It does. I mean, it's putting it into uh, putting the story into a much larger context. Mm -hmm. But we had scientists thing. that built, you know, the Mark ones and the Derivatrons, who then, you know, but but the scientists couldn't stop dreaming, and the machines wanted to please their masters, and so they kept going. Um, you know, it's I think it's very current, and it's something that we humans must really have some kind of a primeval fear of. Yeah. Because it's something as well, I think the sort of the, it actually, I think it's from um, Hebrew legend and stuff, the golem, for example, the sort of the clay creature and, and whatnot, if I remember correctly, uh -huh. um, is arguably sort of the prototype for kind of all of this fears. Frankenstein as well, which I think Lisa Bowerman talks about in the extras on this, deals with kind of the similar ideas as well of science outstripping morality to a certain extent. I mean, it's. It's mm -hmm. a really interesting story the more you look at it. It's got a lot of layers to it. And I think it's one of the things that makes it kind of stand up. In a way, it is sad it didn't get made um, at the yeah. time, as we were talking about, that, you know, it got replaced first by the Daleks. And let's be honest, if the Daleks hadn't happened, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about this story at all. I think the Daleks would have come along eventually. Well, I think it was like the, intended to be like the seventh story, but... There's something, I think there's something about the way the stars kind of aligned with that story going out when it did. Yeah. And the Daleks capturing the popularity and establishing Doctor Who's thing that, you know, I think they talk about in, I know in the in the extras on this, but also in the CD booklet about, you know, would there have been sort of Derivatron mania in the same way there was Dalek mania? Would we still be sitting here talking about Doctor Who, you know, 51, 52 years later? It's, I think it's a valid question. We obviously have, we don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I tend to think, I, I mean, it would have, I think that, you know, the story would have been well received had it been broadcast at the time. It, you know, we would probably, I think we'd look back on it better from our perspective now than we would have, I think, then maybe. And we would probably maybe hold it up, you know, as a better, as one of the best examples of the Hartnell era. The thing is, we're basing it on the script mainly and the performances and readings of this. We don't know what the robot, the various robot types would have looked like. Right. We don't know who would have actually played the perfect one in 1963-64. We don't know what the sets would have looked like, for that matter. Right. So, 
I mean, we're basing it, we're trying to base our opinions on what would the show have been like on sort of half the information, as it were. Right, because listening to the story, you know, I am coming up with cinematic images of a glittering citadel and and you know then a golden perfect robot and, and all that and and it probably would not have looked that way in the 1960s yes <laughs> I mean, it's the kind of story i think that wouldn't get made today i think it's i think it would be a bit too slow for the modern audience hmm. well see i didn't find it slow listening to it um actually and and i want us to avoid telling the story in our discussion here right because for me what made it such a delightful story is that it keeps revealing new things as we go along yes new surprises new horrors new delightful things keep happening along the way and uh, i wouldn't want to spoil any of them by talking about them yeah and that's what made it move so well for me and why i think it's so well written I mean, you know, the interesting thing is, and I, I, somebody pointed this out, I think, about um, Ark in Space a while back, that, you know, you look at a lot of the Hartnell stories, and it starts off with the Doctor and the companions arrive somewhere, and they slowly piece together where they are, and then they, you know, then the story finally starts after about the end of the first episode. Uh-huh. You think about the first Dalek story, for example. Space yeah. Museum is another wonderful example of that. Goodness, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, the Ark in Space from later on. I mean, the Ark uh-huh. in Space is one of the stereo is one of the, I almost said stereotypical, but really archetypal Doctor Who stories mm-hmm. in a big way. And this follows kind of in that tradition because you do have the first episode where everything is mysterious and you don't know what's going on, and then the story just keeps unfolding. Right. I mean, it's it's one of those stories. It's, it's interesting because it starts out as a mystery, mm-hmm. and it eventually becomes. A sort of a bit of a runaround and escape, it get captures and escapes, and then it ends up becoming, without hopefully giving anything away, it becomes suddenly becomes a race against time by the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it's it's a story. In a weird way, it's one I go back to about once a year. The last time I had listened to this before we recorded, we decided we were going to finally record this episode was back in November 2013. So right around the time of the show's 50th anniversary. And I've listened to it, you know, about, I've listened to it three or four times now, and I've read the script book, and there is a very good fan film version of it out there available that's uh, four episodes instead of six. As we were talking about during the trailer break, that was actually done by a group of Chicago area Doctor Who fans in the early 2000s, and is done as a wonderful and loving pastiche of, you know, early 60s Doctor Who. Uh, And highly worth seeking out in its own right, but I highly recommend the audio as well. Just because, for large part, because you do get William Russell and Caroline Ford reading it and actually acting in it. And I have to say, you know, when I read the script book, there were times in the dialogue, even though it was written very early on, there's a line in uh, episode one when the scanner screen in the TARDIS is apparently out. Ian has this wonderful line about, well, the projectionist has gone home. And when I read the script, I could I could hear it in my mind, sort of in my mind's ear, for a lack of a better way of putting it. William Russell saying that line. And I can hear William Russell saying that line now. And it was delightful to do it because he <laughs> delivered it exactly the way I heard it in my, in my mind's ear. Well, and I think that uh, William Russell does a great job of not only narrating and being himself, you know, I mean, being the the um, Mr. Chesterton character, but he also has, has the Hartnell doctor's mannerisms in the way he speaks. Right. So I had no trouble discerning who was speaking. And then the same thing when Carol Ann Ford does Barbara, 
um, she somehow evokes Barbara very well. Yes. Um, and you can tell they do multiple tracks because otherwise Barbara and Susan could not sing together. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, she does a wonderful job of uh, creating Barbara for me. Yes. Uh, besides making herself sound um, decades younger. Yes. Yeah, we have to say, I mean, she she was in her early 20s playing a 15-year-old, you know, yeah. 50 years ago. And, you know, but she does an excellent job, not just narrating, but also, as you say, of invoking Susan mm -hmm. as, as this sort of this young teenage girl. And also, you know, her, the way she does Barbara, which is actually very simple. It's just, she does something with her voice. I think it, it becomes slightly more, I don't want to say cultured. Yeah, yeah. But I can't quite find the word. I'm looking for to actually to properly describe the culture is going to have to be the way I'm going to, I'm going to have to use that to where she just evokes Barbara and it just comes across very well. It does. William Russell's he gets he doesn't have Hartnell's voice down. I think Peter Purvis does a better job on actually capturing Hartnell's voice in inverted commas. But in terms of sort of the vocal inflections and the mannerisms, William Russell is second to none in capturing Hartnell. That's why they got him to do Light at the End. But also, you know, he's in his 80s now. I think he just turned 90 not long ago. <laughs> but he, so it's probably easier for him at this point to sound like the doctor yes. than to sound like his younger self. <laughs> I mean, his, his Ian does sound considerably older than he did in the TV series. Yeah, but, but I, he's got but that you, same vigor of expression when he does him his younger self. Right. And I buy it. I mean, you can tell the voice is a, that just a little bit older. But you do, as you say, he's still got that vigor and that drive and that energy, mm -hmm. especially in his confrontations with the various robots. Right, right. And I have to say, the music, the music is impeccable. They, they've got the, the jittery violins going in the tensor scenes that just really ratchet up the, the pressure. <laughs> uh, Everywhere along the way, uh, the music is not intrusive, but it's always supporting the action. Yeah. So I, I really, really liked that. I think Toby Robinson, I think, is the one who did the music mm -hmm. for this. And it, it, it's a really cinematic score in a way, and the sound it design as it well. Is. And, you know, you, you think about what we would have gotten had the story been on TV in 1963-64. Mm, yeah, see, the music would not have been there for us yeah. like this was. You wouldn't have had the music. Uh, you'd have had the, probably the radiophonic sound effects. I mean, I mean, you've just watched the Daleks. I think as part of for twenty megabytes <laughs> as part of the journey for that. So yeah, imagine some of the sound effects and some of the music from that being put into this story. I think it's probably the best way of putting it. Yeah, and I don't think it would have had quite the same effect. Mm, not at all. And of course, we haven't mentioned yet um, the other actor in this production, which is uh, Joseph Fosca, I believe is how his name is pronounced. Oh, yes. He's he's amazing. <laughs> he plays everybody else in this story. Yes. <laughs> which may, which once you hear the story, or if you've read the script book, it will make perfect sense as to why one actor is playing everybody else in the story. Well, yes, it will. But when I first heard it, and of course, you know, I, I just do the digital, you know, I just hear it. I don't have CDs to look at. I had to look it up on the site to see, you know, who are these other people? <laughs> and it just blew me away that it was one person did them all. He does an exceptionally good job. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, he's playing robots. He's playing the perfect one. He's playing other characters. And you wouldn't know that it was the same. As you say, you wouldn't know it was one you guy doing everything. Know. 
I did not know. I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall for the recording because there's times he's having a conversation with himself. <laughs> yeah. I just I just wanted to be there. Did, did, was he swapping back and forth live? Were they recording his all everything separately? Yeah, I'm thinking they do separate tracks because there's times when the same actor is doing two people that are actually interrupting each other. Right. And that just can't happen, you know, without doing separate track recording. So I'm, I'm thinking they did that with him. Yeah, I, they almost certainly had to have with Caroline Ford doing Susan and Barbara, as you pointed out earlier, with them singing at the same time. Yeah, and they hang out together through most of the story. Yes. Well, that's the, that's the interesting thing about the writing and the script is the fact that the two males get paired off, the two females get paired off together. Uh-huh. Whereas it usually would be, you know, Bar if I remember looking at a lot of the Hartnell stories, it used to be the Doctor and Barbara or the Doctor and Ian would get stuck together. Uh -huh. And, you know, whoever else got stuck was Susan or Vicky. And actually it's sort of the interesting way, it, you know, the, you know, the two males get paired off, the two females get paired off. It's, it's sort of an interesting thing in the writing, uh, which actually there is some reasoning for as, as we discover as the story goes along. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, it's it's an interesting story. It's one that, while I have my reservations about how much of the adaptation Nigel Robinson did, and to be fair, some of it I can understand, because having read the script book, there's not a whole lot of description of the various robots and whatnot. So he basically had to make all of that up from scratch. And it's interesting that the things he uses as the basis for for a lot of the descriptions and stuff is Metropolis, sort of the first major robot movie. Oh, okay. one of the first, you know, the, probably the first major science fiction film in a way, um, is what he really bases a lot of his descriptions and stuff on. Which is entirely fair because, you know, early Doctor Who especially was being really influenced by a lot of the stuff that went before it. Um, if every time Do Doctor Who went into the future during the 60s, everybody ends up dressed out of H.G. Uh, Wells' Things to Come, it feels like. So that's completely understandable. I think my reservations with this are about sort of you know, the toning down of the religious subtext, some of the stuff that get does get cut out, which I think sort of lessens the story to a certain extent. But it, it is a fascinating listen, at least from a historical perspective, of what might have been for the show. Um, and in some respects, I, I do, you know, my opinion of it has certainly changed over the years. I remember thinking, well, this is an okay story. But the more I go back and listen to it, the more sort of layers I find to it, the more I find that interests me and that I find enjoyable even, so... Well, I absolutely loved it. Uh, and as I said earlier, um, I found myself listening to one episode after another with no breaks because new things kept being revealed as it went along. And I kept wondering, oh, what's, you know, what's going to happen next? So I would just keep going. And so, yeah, I loved it. And I would highly recommend this one. Um, other lost stories like uh, Farewell Great Mastodon and the uh, Fragile Yellow Arc of Fragrance. Is that it? Yes. <laughs> Um, those um, make me cross-eyed with boredom because I'm just not a historicals person. So I uh, did not enjoy those, but this one I highly recommend. Oh, and I love those, so. <laughs> and this one my opinion is shifting on. So if you're a fan of the early years of the show, definitely seek it out. It's available from bigfinish.com. You can also get it through Amazon as well. So well worth a listen. At least that's our concerted opinion. Absolutely. If you disagree with us or would like to agree with us or just want to talk about Big Finish in general, uh, you can send in your feedback to us at feedback.vortex at yahoo.com or you can join our Facebook group. So I think that about wraps things up for this episode. Mary, what are we going to be talking about next time? 
Ooh, next time I'm excited. We're going to be listening and to and talking about Dark Eyes 3. Ah, uh, finally. Uh-huh. <laughs> and just in time for Dark Eyes 4 to come out in March. So <laughs> about time we finally get a little behind to. the eight ball here. Yes, a little bit behind. Oh, man, but it's been a busy couple of months, so hopefully we'll be back on something akin to our, our regular schedule. Oh, I hope so, yeah. After all of this, so. <laughs> I miss doing this as often as we were. Yes. But I have to say, I have enjoyed having time to listen to something besides Doctor Who stuff, because I have podcasts and stuff piling up, but <laughs> that's just me. You're so, more than just Doctor Who. That, that's true. There is a lot more to the world than just Doctor Who. Send in your hate mail to feedback.vortex <laughs> at yahoo.com. So until next time, that's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. So long. Thanks for all the fish. Take care. time I open my mouth and I'm going to say something uh, to what you say, you keep talking. So now I've given up. (laughs) (laughs) This is going at the end of the episode now. You know that, right? (laughs) Okay. Um,